Before we head into today's episode, I want to briefly talk about a project I became involved in and that is very, very close to my heart. It is all about optimism and hope, and I believe that both of these things are intrinsically linked to business success. The organisation that I'm talking about is called Project Optimism, and their vision is to help spread optimism worldwide. They believe that optimism at its core is a belief that things will work out in the end, and if they haven't, it is not the end. My optimistic habit was to ask ourselves a question, which is, what makes you optimistic? As part of Project Optimism's vision, which is to help spread optimism worldwide, they have made their first course available to anyone around the world for free. It is all about the habits of an optimist. And as I mentioned, it is a gift to all of us so that we can feel lighter and brighter. I hope that this course gives you a lift. And the way to access this course is to visit their website, which is www.projectoptimism.com.au. You're listening to the Deconstructing Success podcast. I am your host, Tima Alhaj. Have you ever wondered what happens behind closed doors when it comes to real success? I know I have, and this is exactly why this show was created. I have an insatiable desire when it comes to learning from the best in the world and an obsession with how successful people think, operate and execute. I want to know what sets these people apart from the average person. Each week, my focus is to have intimate conversations with successful CEOs, founders, athletes, experts, and leaders that have created extraordinary levels of success in their own lives. My goal is to ask the right questions whilst deconstructing their success process, their mindset, their life philosophy, and how they continue to achieve success. I want this information to be actionable for my listeners so you can achieve the success you desire and create your dream life. If you are hungry to grow and evolve to your full potential, then continue listening and subscribe as I deconstruct success from some of the greatest minds and the most inspirational individuals in the world. This week on Deconstructing Success, I interview entrepreneur, speaker, and New York Times bestselling author, James Clear. James Clear is the author of Atomic Habits, and I can absolutely see why so many love this book. When I read this book, I really did not know what to expect. Atomic Habits is such a fantastic book. It is well-written, it is easy to read, and I see this book as a self-help guide on how to break bad behaviors, adopt good ones. It shows us how small incremental everyday routines compound into massive positive change over time. In today's interview, we cover how to form new habits, how we execute a four-step pattern every time we perform a habit, which includes cue, craving, response, and reward. We also break down the mindset of how a successful person applies habits, habit stacking, and so much more. If you have not yet read Atomic Habits, I highly recommend this book. It is really easy to read. As I mentioned, it's a self-help guide and the strategies can be applied instantly. 
You can also access the first chapter for free if you visit James Clear's website at jamesclear.com. Welcome to my show. Today, I'm really excited to have James Clear with me today. He's New York Times bestselling author of Atomic Habits, and he's also an entrepreneur and a world-known speaker as well. So thank you so much for coming along today. I'm, I'm really honored that you're here. And as you can tell, I absolutely loved reading your book. Yeah, I love that. Thank you. Lots and lots of notes and, um, and some really, really... I just can't wait to get into the questions. So yeah, thank you so much. It's good to talk to you. Thanks for having me. No problem. So uh, so tell me a little bit about why you wrote the book. I'd love to know a little bit more about why you wrote the book. Yeah, um, there are kind of two answers. The the first answer is like real big picture, like why write about habits at all? And all of us, every human, is building habits all the time. You know, whether you're thinking about it or not, you don't you don't ever have to read a book about it. You'll be building them regardless. And I think for that reason, because they're so integral to our life, because they are happening all the time, a lot of people feel like they're the victim of their habits, you know, like their habits are happening to them. And if you understand what a habit is and how it works, it doesn't have to be that way. You can be the architect of your habits and not the victim of them. And so I think that's one core important reason to write about habits because they're so universal and because they're so uh, widespread. The second reason is like more of a personal one for me. Um, so I was writing about habits at jamesclear.com, which was my website. I wrote there two articles a week for the first three years. And it was really that writing habit that led to the development of my thoughts on habits and just kind of this um, like body of work that I had around it. And after doing that for a few years, I started to have publishers reach out or literary agents reach out. And I just kind of had this thought like, okay, maybe it's time to pursue this or think about this in a, maybe a bigger picture way. And I didn't really realize it at the time, but when I signed the book deal, I was signing on to much more than I thought because on a blog, you have individual articles about habits, but when you put them into a book form, it needs to be more like a number line, like chapter one, chapter two, chapter three. They can't just be like a spider web and connect in whatever way you want. And that process of turning each thing into a specific order was much harder than I expected. But I love that I now have something that, you know, if someone's going to read my stuff, they're like, where should I start? I can just be like, read this, right? And so part of it was personal and part of it was related to the topic. I really feel as though that this is the kind of thing that you would give to a teenager, you know, just before they start you know, uh, high school sure. or, before, you know, just as they're really just sort of seeing the world for what it is. And it's, it really is such a great, the way you've just even broken things up is just so simple. It feels like more, more of a workbook mm. than it does an actual book, if that makes sense. Yeah. And you give so much free information on your website as well. So many different templates and so many workable sheets that are really going to help people. Now, one of the things that I first mentioned to you when we first met outside in the, in the center is I love the name of the, 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 the actual book itself. So can you break down Atomic Habits and, and why you chose that name? Sure. So I picked the phrase Atomic Habits for three reasons. Uh, so the, the first meaning of the word atomic is what you might expect, like tiny or small, like an atom. And that is a big part of my philosophy. Habits should be small and easy to do. The second meaning of the word atomic is the one that's overlooked the most, which is the fundamental unit in a larger system. So like atoms build into molecules, molecules build into compounds, and so on. And your habits are kind of like that. They're kind of like the fundamental units of your daily routine that when you put them together, you end up with you know, what your normal day looks like. And then the third and final meaning is the source of immense energy or power. 
And I think if you combine all three of those meanings, you understand the narrative arc of the book, or you certainly at least understand the meaning of the title, which is if you make changes that are small and easy to do, and you layer those changes on top of each other, like units in a larger system, then you can end up with some really powerful and remarkable results in the long run. And so in that way, I think Atomic Habits kind of encapsulates the idea of the book or the core philosophy of the book of small changes taking you not just like making it easy to start, but also all the way to the finish of something more remarkable. Yeah, because you definitely talk about goals and how goals, when they are achieved, is just a temporary uh, change in your life mm. where we're putting habits into place or really look, focusing on the systems are really what's really important in terms of changing your life. So yeah. can we talk a little bit more about that? You know, we all, life is very heavily results oriented. And I don't know, maybe this is exacerbated or multiplied by like the effect of social media or certainly news. Like you're never going to see a news story that is like a uh, man eats chicken and salad for lunch today. You know, it's only going to be a story once a uh, man loses 50 kilos or something, mm-hmm. right? It's only a story once you get the result. And that is just magnified by social media, by seeing everybody's results. We hear about the Broadway play, Once It's a Hit, or we hear about the book, Once It's a Bestseller. So the results of success are highly visible, but the process of success is usually hidden from view. And I think for that reason, we tend to overvalue results and undervalue the process. Mm -hmm. But the irony of this and what you're kind of hinting at here is that all the results that we so badly want to change or we so deeply want to improve are often a lagging measure of the habits that precede them. So your knowledge is a lagging measure of your reading and learning habits. Your bank account is a lagging measure of your financial habits. Your physical fitness is a lagging measure of your eating and training habits. And so that is true for most areas, most domains of life, that your results in that area are a lagging measure of the habits that precede them. And so if you want the results to change, if you want the outcomes to change, what you really need to change are the habits that precede that result, not the actual outcome itself. Uh, And that, I think, is one of the core ideas of Atomic Habits, that we can shift our outcomes in life if we shift our attention to our daily habits. You mentioned something earlier uh, in terms of being goal-oriented. I think we live in such a time right now where that's such a big focus Mm -hmm. on on people's achievements in general, uh, especially on social media. People, there are definitely people that do document the process, but it is very much goals-oriented approach. So what do you think of social media and how do you think it impacts on people's habits and ultimately their life? Well, uh, it probably leads to, and there, I don't want to entirely criticize technology and social media because I think there are a lot of benefits. Scale is one that we didn't have before. Uh, pretty much anybody can have a voice now. Everybody can have a platform. There are fewer gatekeepers. Like All those are positive things. But there is a probably a tendency for people to spend their life pursuing more borrowed goals or uh, borrowed desires now because you can just see somebody puts a picture up and it gets 8,000 likes. Well, now all of a sudden you're like, well, maybe I, I kind of want 8,000 likes. I kind of want that amount of approval or attention or affection, praise. And so we start to implicitly, even if we would never say it this way, I think we start to soak up the goals or the outcomes or the results that other people share that are popular for others, we start to want to imitate them ourselves. So I think it probably leads to more imitation uh, or chasing of like socially approved goals and less maybe thinking for yourself uh, or like more deep introspection about what do I actually want my life to look like? So that's probably one downside. But more broadly speaking, I talk about this in the book as well, 
the more we focus on the goals, the more we tend to undervalue the system. Mm-hmm. And the, and this is a line from the book that I think kind of encapsulates this idea, but we do not rise to the level of our goals. We fall to the level of our systems. And so we see goals all the time online, but just having the goal, just having the ambition does not mean that you will achieve the outcome. Mm-hmm. And in fact, most of the time, the winners and the losers in any particular area often have the same goals. You know, like you could have 30 teams competing for a championship. They all have the goal of winning the championship. It's not the goal that separates whether they do it or not. Um, You have 100 people apply for a job. They all have the goal of getting the job. So if the winners and the losers have the same goals, the goal cannot be the thing that makes the difference. And the thing that does is the system, the collection of, and I would define the system as your goal is your desired outcome, your system is the daily habits that will get you there. Mm-hmm. And so if we want things to change, what we need to shift is the, the daily habits. And if there's ever a gap, there's ever a, a separation between your desired outcome and your daily habits, your habits will always win. The system will always produce the result and not the goal. And so it doesn't mean goals are useless, like they're very useful for setting a sense of direction. But once you have that clarity, what you need is to focus your attention on the system. And how do habits work? Can you break that down? So I have a four-stage model that I like to break habits into. Roughly speaking, just very high level, cue, craving, response, reward. Cue, craving, response, reward. So the cue is something that gets your attention. Like you walk into the kitchen, you see a plate of cookies. That's a visual cue. Then after you, something gets your attention, you make a prediction in your brain. You don't, you don't have to think about it, it just happens automatically. But so you see the plate of cookies and then you predict, oh, well, those will be sweet, sugary, tasty, enjoyable. The third step is the response. It's actually that prediction, oh, these will be tasty, that motivates you to perform the response, which uh, you walk over and take a bite. And then finally, there's the reward. You know, it is in fact, sweet, sugary, tasty, enjoyable. Now, not every behavior in life is rewarding. Right? Sometimes things have a consequence. Sometimes they're fairly neutral. But if a behavior is not rewarding, it's unlikely to be a habit uh, or unlikely to become a habit. You need this positive emotional signal to tell your brain, hey, that felt good. I should repeat that again in the future. So those are kind of, the, roughly speaking, the four steps that every habit goes through. There's something that gets your attention. You make a prediction about whether it's beneficial or not to act on it. You take the action and then you get some kind of outcome. And Pretty much all habits have that to some degree. The key distinction on what makes a good habit or a bad habit is whether that outcome uh, is immediately favorable or ultimately favorable. Uh, For most of our bad habits, the immediate reward is there. You know, like it tastes good to eat a donut right away. It's the ultimate outcome that's unfavorable. Or it feels good maybe to smoke with friends and socialize, but the ultimate outcome is unfavorable. So those four steps, cue, craving, response, reward, are kind of how I divide a habit. What is it about instant gratification that we're so addicted to as human beings? Well, it doesn't serve us well uh, in modern society in some cases, but it's not a broken, an entirely broken system. Like it makes a lot of evolutionary sense. If you are deciding, do I forage berries from this berry patch that's, you know, 10 meters away right next to me, or do I walk to the other side of the mountain and try to get them from the forest over there? Well, it makes more sense to do the thing that immediately gratifies you. It doesn't waste energy. It's um, yeah, more convenient, more efficient, and so on. And the ultimate goal of the brain is to solve the problems of life with as little energy and effort as possible, because that means you have more left over. You have a surplus to handle unexpected things that may come your way. And that's kind of the role of habits, is to solve the problems of life while re- uh, retaining energy and effort. 
So we all are sort of wired for this path of least resistance. We're wired to do the lazy thing because the lazy thing saves energy and gives us more availability or opportunity to, to handle other problems that may come our way unexpectedly. But that runs against us, runs against our, our natural instincts run against us in modern society because we live in such a society of abundance. And so it used to be 100,000 years ago or 50,000 years ago that food was fairly scarce. It required effort to get calories. Um, you had to forage on the savanna or kill an animal or walk over to, across the river or whatever. Uh, now, all you have to do is pull up an app on your phone and tap it and like calories can come to you without you expending en any energy. There's a challenge now, there's a mismatch between our paleolithic instincts for the path of least resistance and conserving energy in an environment that was not very abundant or required a lot more effort, and the modern society, which is very abundant, and uh, the path of least resistance is one that is much more calorie-dense or stimuli-heavy than it was historically. It's just that over-exaggerated uh, appearance and feeling of things. Is, we're just so, we're so gravitated toward that as well. It's just, it's really interesting. It's kind of like we play tricks on our own minds. Yes. You know, like um, there's uh, the concept, which I mentioned in the book, is supernormal stimuli is what it's yeah. called, you know? So like, uh, you know, an incredible creation from a French pastry chef is a supernormal stimulus of food that you would find in the wild. You would never find something like that, <laughs> but it's got the same elements as fat and carbs mm. and protein that just tastes incredible because of how it's created. Mm -hmm. Cocaine is another example, you know, like if you chew uh, the leaves that it comes from, you don't get the same amount of a high, mm -hmm. but if we distill it down into this very fine powder, well, now all of a sudden it's an addictive substance. Same thing is true for, you know, advertisements. You can see even the model in the advertisement doesn't look like that person, right? But yeah. when we throw light and makeup and Photoshop and, like, you know, per everything else is perfected, yeah. now all of a sudden we have this super normal stimulus of beauty. Mm -hmm. And so we do it everywhere. Uh, we do it all over the world. But the more heightened that stimulus is, the more likely we are to be attracted to or to act on it or to, you know, it is to motivate us. One of the things that you mentioned in your book is that even though we've progressed as humans, our, our brain still, even though it's, I think you mentioned something about 50,000, it's 50,000 years old in terms of the way we operate and the way we've, all of these habits that are ingrained within us. So being attracted to these over-exaggerated things. Mm -hmm. Why has our brain not evolved away from that? Because I really find that so interesting. Do yeah. Well, so I think, first of all, evolution is always happening. So it is evolving. Uh, it is, you know, adapting. There have been changes in the brain. The difference is that modern society is moving so much faster than physical evolution is. Uh, and so it's kind of like two, you know, it's, it's like two cars, but one is going at three miles an hour, or what would that be? I don't know, 10 kilometers an hour. <laughs> and another one is going at like a thousand, right? And it's just... The difference between the speed is so drastic, the growth of modern society is so rapid that um, we have not had enough time for evolution to catch up in a physical sense. Well, a good, quick example of this. Most of our ancestors grew up in what scientists would call an immediate return environment. So like most of the choices that you make have an immediate outcome on your life. You know, do I get food or not? Do I take shelter from the storm? Do I avoid the lion that's on the savanna or whatever? But now in modern society, and most of these are fairly recent creations in terms of evolutionary history, you, most of the choices that we make are now what scientists would call a delayed return environment. In other words, you make a choice now for an outcome that does not immediately impact you, but you go to work today so that you get a paycheck in a few weeks, or you save for retirement now so you can retire in 20 years, 
or you go to school today so that you can get a degree three years from now. And um, those choices, those institutions, schools and education systems, retirement funds and pensions, paychecks and automatic direct deposits, like these are all pretty new inventions in the span of human history. Even if they're a couple hundred years old, that's nothing. That's just a blink of an eye in evolutionary terms. And so we've created this like huge fabric of society where we have to make choices now that are very different than what our brains evolved in. It's just so, it really is so interesting. So thanks for answering that question. One of the things that you also mentioned in the book is the purpose of habits are actually, your brain's just trying to be effective, regardless of what type of habit it is, whether it's serving or not so efficient. Can you touch a little bit on, well, if we are unaware of whether a habit is going to be effective for us or not, mm. how can one be aware of that? I know that might seem like a silly question, but it could be just an everyday habit. It could be the slightest thing. But how can one actually build that awareness within their day? So um, part of it is trial and error. Uh, there's just certain, you know, life is complex and you don't know always whether a habit's going to work or serve you in the way that you want. But it is true that we have it sort of like they're solutions to the recurring problems that we face. So, for example, you may come home from work and you feel exhausted. And people deal with that problem, that situation, in different ways. One person might go for a run at 5.30 every night. Another person may play video games for an hour. A third person might smoke a cigarette. And those habits, playing video games or smoking or running, they all solve kind of the same basic problem, which is, ah, I just feel kind of tired and stressed and exhausted. I need to chill out a little bit. But some of them are much more healthy than others. And so we sort of collect these habits uh, that solve the problems that we face without thinking about it too much. Like we just kind of find ourselves in a situation where, wow, this seems to like have solved what I wanted, you know, to resolve. And so instead, I think the process of habit change, and this comes back to the question you just asked, is it always starts with awareness. It starts with some amount of self-awareness so I can see what habits do I currently have, and then maybe I can intervene a little bit more. In the book, I refer to this as the habit scorecard. You just go through your day and you list down in as granular detail as you can every behavior you you perform. So you may say like, okay, I wake up, I turn off my alarm, I check Instagram, I put my phone on the desk, I walk into the shower, I weigh myself, I go to the bathroom, I brush my teeth, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And the more detail you can get about that, the more you can start to see little places that you want to intervene or change, that level of awareness kind of opens up then. So for example, you might look at that list and say, all right, I wake up, I turn off my alarm, yeah, whatever, that's fine. I check Instagram. Oh yeah, that is true. I usually check Instagram before I get out of bed each day. Do I really want to do that? Should I be browsing that before I've even taken a step? I don't know, probably not. And so that, but it was really that process of becoming aware of it that gives you a chance now to try to restructure it or to, to change it. So I think this, the scorecard can be a helpful way to, to raise awareness. And uh, people can get caught up in just really measuring every detail and every movement that they make throughout the day. How can that be measured where it's going to actually be impactful versus damaging to their own habits and their own system creation? Yeah, that's a good question because measurement is a really significant part of changing habits. I have a whole section on measurement in the book where I talk about there's this uh, phrase or idea concept called Goodhart's Law. And what it says is that when a measure becomes the target, it ceases to be a good measure. So, for example... A lot of people measure their progress in the gym by the number on the scale. But when the number on the scale becomes the target, 
and not being a healthy person, now it's ceased to be a good measure because now it's all about, you know, people start making sacrifices for um, just to get the scale to move lower, even if it's actually not that healthy. Or uh, you see the same thing in school all the time. You know, students prioritize getting a good grade rather than learning because that's the, the measure is the target. And so this is an important thing to ask when you're building a habit, which is how can I pick a good measure that gets me to show up again and again? So this is the, I think, the answer to your question, like the little short takeaway, which is you want to choose a measure that matches the frequency that you need to practice the habit with. So, for example, if you choose, let's take my dad. So my dad likes to swim. And whenever he goes to the pool and does a workout, he gets out and his body looks the same when he leaves, right? There's no physical change for doing that habit that day. So if he was measuring his progress based on how his body looked in the mirror, that would not be fast enough. If he measured it based on this number on the scale, that would not be fast enough. So instead, what he does is he has a little pocket calendar and he pulls it out and he puts an X on that day when he swims. And so it's just a little habit tracker. But by having that, he has a signal of progress that I'm doing the right thing. And that signal, that measurement, that feedback matches the pace at which he needs to do the habit, which is daily. And so that, I think, can be a helpful question to ask is how can I choose a measure that matches the frequency of the habit? But you still have this question that you brought up, which is like, how do we avoid guilt and shame and like assigning self-worth to the measurement and so on? And that's a much bigger question about confidence and how much of your identity you link to a number versus linking your identity to a habit and so on. And I talk about identity-based habits more in the book too. But yeah, there's measurement is a powerful thing, but it can also be a tricky thing. You definitely touch on behavior and identity in the book, which I love that you, and I think that's really was one of your starting points is really looking at, well, it's not about who you want to be. It's about just doing the things that that person would be doing. Mm. I can't remember the exact phrasing, but it's really, really powerful. So rather than saying I am an athlete or something like that, well, what would an athlete be doing every single day to be at the level that they are? Uh, So can you expand on that? Because that can be applied in so many areas of our lives, whether it be relationships or health or business. Mm -hmm. It it really is such a great foundational tool to be able to then build those systems around those habits that we're talking about. Yeah, I think this is a really key question. Maybe the ultimate reason that habits really matter. You know, like we we all often talk about habits as, oh, they can help you lose weight or get six pack abs or make more money or reduce stress. And yeah, it's true. Habits can do all those things. They can help you get external results. But the real reason that habits matter is that they can reshape your self-image. They can reshape your internal identity. And ultimately, I think true behavior change is really identity change in the sense that, like, it's one thing to say, I'm the type of person who wants this, but it's something very different to say, I'm the type of person who is this, you know? And so that's why I say, like, um, the goal is not to run a marathon. The goal is to become a runner. The goal is not to write a book. The goal is to become a writer. The goal is not to do a silent meditation retreat. The goal is to become a meditator. Mm. And once you assign that identity to yourself, I'm a meditator, I'm a writer, I'm a runner, it's much more likely to have it's going to stick because that you're just acting in alignment with how you view yourself. Mm-hmm. And I think the way we can like tie all this together and, and ultimately why small habits can matter so much is that Every action you take is like a vote for the type of person you want to become. And so the more that you do those small habits, sure, writing one sentence, no, that does not finish the book. But it does cast a vote for I'm a writer. And doing one push-up does not transform your body. 
but it does cast a vote for, I'm the type of person who doesn't miss workouts. And the more that you cast those votes, the more that you build up this like evidence, this pile of identities, you have something to like root the new identity and root that new belief in. And that I think is like the deeper reason why habits matter so much. And so what I often recommend is similar to what you just mentioned, which is that rather than saying like, oh, I want to lose this amount of weight, just have a question that you carry around with yourself. Like what would a healthy person do? And then whenever you're in a new environment, whenever you're facing a decision, do what that, the answer to that question is, do what that person would do. You know, if you're, if you have dreams of writing a novel, but you haven't made progress yet, then ask yourself, what would a writer do? You know, what would a novelist do? Uh, And then in the next moment, do that thing. And in a strange way, I think, and I've been thinking about this more since the book has come out, it might be more useful to have good questions than to have good answers. Mm. Um, By having a good question to ask yourself, you can come up with what the right answer is for you in that moment. And so uh, what would a healthy person do? What would a writer do? What would a meditator do? Those are good questions to carry around with you as you're trying to build those habits. And it removes that guilt and it removes that shame and, you know, that negative self-talk and that internal dialogue that we might have in those moments. So it's really, really powerful. It was one of those things that when I was reading that, because I I do that within myself, you know, on a daily basis as well, Mm. but there are definitely moments that I do forget. (laughs) We're all human. But it just reminded me of the power of that. You know, what would a healthy person do or what would a writer do in this moment? And uh, and it really just helps create even more clarity um, on, on a daily basis, depending on wherever that person's heading. So... I'd love for you to touch on the 1% because it's, again, so powerful. It's, and they really are small changes, mm-hmm. but you really talk about the compounding effect of these sort of things. So can you touch on the 1%? Sure. So the core idea here is that getting 1% better each day is not just like a little bonus or nice to have, but actually can be a very meaningful pathway to getting like elite results. And... If you are, I like to conceptualize this in different ways. So like one way to conceptualize in like a very mathy way. But um, if you get 1% better each day for a year, 1.01 to 365th power, then you end up 37 times better at the end of the year. You get 1% worse, 0.99 to the 365th power, you drive yourself almost all the way down to zero. And that, the key distinction here, like that curve, that's basically if you were to map it out or graph it out, it looks like a compound interest curve. Mm-hmm. But life is not exactly like that, right? Life is not exactly like financial compound interest. But man, it feels like that a lot of the time. Mm -hmm. You know, especially at the beginning of that curve, the difference between a choice that's 1% better or 1% worse on any given day isn't a whole lot. You know, like what's the difference between eating a burger and fries for lunch or eating a salad? Not much on any given day. Like your body looks the same in the mirror. The scale hasn't changed. It's only two or five or 10 years later that you turn around and you're like, wow, those daily choices really do add up. And this is one of the things about habits and about everything that we've talked about today. They're a double-edged sword. They can either build you up or cut you down. And so you really need to understand what a habit is and how it works so that you can design it to work for you rather than to work against you. And so for all of those reasons, I like to refer to habits as the compound interest of self-improvement. The same way that money multiplies through compound interest, the effects of your habits multiply as you repeat them across time. And so if you are getting 1% better, good ha- if you're getting 1% better, if you're building good habits each day, time is your ally, right? Like you just need to be patient. You just need to let time work for you. But if you're getting 1% worse, now all of a sudden time is your enemy. And, uh, you know, each day that clicks by, you're digging the hole a little bit deeper. 
And so, and this is what I, one of the things I mentioned in the conclusion of the book is that the holy grail of habit change is really a, not a 1% improvement, but like a thousand of them. It's, it's about making small, consistent, non-threatening, easy changes each day, but then taking that philosophy into the next day as well and layering them on top of each other until you end up with that overall, that atomic system, that powerful grouping of small 1% changes that leads to something much more significant in the long term. And one of the results that you mentioned is if you do apply that 1% rule every single day or to every single habit, your results are, I think it was 37 times greater than where you started off, which right. is incredible. So we don't, small habits don't add up, they compound. Yep. And that's very hard to like latch on, right? We think, oh, I just do one and then I do another one and then mm. I get two and then I do another mm. one and I get three. But it's, it, the, the cumulative effect, the layered compounding effect is much greater. Yeah, no, definitely. And, and, you've, and as I mentioned, you have so many different worksheets that people can download for free that are so, so, so helpful as well. Now, to change habits, um, you talk about habit stacking, mm. uh, which was so clever again and so easy and applicable. So can you touch a little bit on that? Sure. So habit stacking is a concept that originally came from a Stanford professor named B.J. Fogg. And he refers to it as anchoring because what you, what you do is you anchor your new habit on top of an old one, or in my language, you stack them on top of each other. So as an example, let's say that you already make a cup of coffee every morning and you want to build a habit of uh, meditating. And so your habit stack would be after I make my morning cup of coffee, I will meditate for 60 seconds. And so that little stack gives you a very clear place for the habit to live. And this is a key distinction or a key element of building habits, which is a lot of people feel like what they lack is motivation when what they really lack is clarity. They think, oh, I just don't feel motivated to work out today or to write today or to meditate today or whatever it is. But the truth is we don't have a very clearly defined place for that habit to live, a time and a space that occupies in your life. And habit stacking can help resolve that because it gives you a very specific place where the new habit occurs. Oh, it happens right after this thing I do every day, right? Um, meditation happens right after I make my morning cup of coffee or doing 10 burpees happens right after I put the leftovers in the microwave and press start. And so you can start to stack all kinds of things together and come up with these little routines, you know, so it could be like when I take my jacket off from work at the end of the day, I immediately change into my workout clothes or when I put my shoes away at the end of the night, I organize one item in my room or when I make my bed in the morning, I immediately put a book on the pillow to read that night. And so each of those little habit stacks, they have a place for that new behavior to live and it makes it more likely that you're going to stick to it. When you were a kid, did you ever imagine that this is what you'd be doing <laughs> as an adult? Um, no, I don't think any 12-year-old sits around and thinks, oh, I'm going to write a book about habits anymore. Um, I look back now and I, did, I didn't have any entrepreneurs in my family. And so I don't think I had anything to look at and be like, oh, I could do that too. Mm -hmm. But a lot of my behavior early on was very entrepreneurial. Mm -hmm. So I think in a broader sense, I probably knew I was going to like do my own thing or start my own thing. But in a specific sense, I definitely didn't know that like habits were going to be what it started out as. Because as a child, I'd love for you to share a little bit of your story as well, which is so remarkable. Just even your recovery and just even just like looking at you thinking, how did that even happen when you were 15 in terms <laughs> of the injury um, with the baseball bat? That was, that was pure accident though, wasn't it? It wasn't a deliberate right. 
So I, I played sports for a variety of sports growing up. Uh, when I was 15 or 16, I suffered this injury um, where a friend of mine took a swing with a bat and it slipped out of his hands and kind of rotated through the, the air and hit me right between the eyes. Like broke my nose, broke the bone behind my nose, your ethmoid bone, which is like fairly deep inside your skull, shattered both eye sockets. Had blood on my clothes. I had to be air carried to the hospital. I couldn't breathe on my own. I had three seizures that day. That night, I was going to have surgery, but had another seizure, and so they placed me into a medically induced coma. And then finally, the next day, I was released from the coma, and kind of the process of healing began. But it was really over that next eight or nine months when I had to practice a lot of the topics that I discussed in the book. I, I didn't have a language for it. Like, if you were to come up to me then, I never would have said, oh, I'm just trying to get 1% better. But yeah. <laughs> that was the time in my life when I had to practice those ideas. Mm-hmm. Um, my first physical therapy session, I was practicing basic motor patterns, like walking a straight line. I couldn't drive a car for the next nine months. Uh, I had double vision for weeks. And so I started by just building small habits that seemed almost insignificant, like in the moment, you know, like going to bed at the same hour each night or once physical therapy was done, this was the first time in my life when I went to the gym a couple times a week, first once or twice, and then eventually three or four times, preparing for uh, class for an hour each day. And individually, they seemed kind of insignificant, but collectively, they gave me a sense of control over my life again, something I felt like I had lost. Mm-hmm. And uh, so that period was very formative for me in the sense that I learned how, how to build small habits and also over the course of three or four or five years as I gradually made it back onto the baseball field and had a decent career as a player, I learned how they could accumulate even though they seemed small on a daily basis. So I think that's kind of an important concept that, or something I try to hold myself to, which is I want to write about topics that I have used. You know, there's that line... In theory, there's no difference between theory and practice, but in practice, there is. Mm -hmm. And I think it's very, you know, it requires a certain amount of work to have a well-informed opinion, a balanced opinion, thoughtful opinion. But at the end of the day, anybody can have an opinion. And to take an idea and to put it into practice, to use it to build your business or to change your life or to, um, you know, get in shape, reduce stress, that that requires actual work. Um, And it also requires the ideas to not just sound good, but to actually be implementable and to to follow through on a daily basis. And so that period in my life where I think was important for that, for that practical element. And I try to meet that standard in what I write now. I want the ideas to not only be scientifically grounded, but also really applicable to daily life and work. Like I I want people to be able to pick the book up, read it, and then be like, I actually made a change in my life because of Mm -hmm. this, right? I actually used it. And um, so for that reason, I kind of have to hold myself to the same standard. You you honestly have written it so well where it's so easy to follow and so many things that you can apply. And the science behind it all, it's just undeniable. So even if you didn't want to believe what you were saying, you actually have to believe what you're saying because the examples that you bring up are just, just like I said, they're just so easy to really, really understand and apply in people's lives. So oh, thank you. No, I, I truly, truly mean that. As, as you can see, I can, I've got all these. <laughs> like, I'm actually quite proud of myself. Yeah, that's great. <laughs> so um, what about your everyday life at the moment, James? Like, Do you ever have your days where you don't follow through on your habits? Habits. And I know you're human, just like the rest of us. So what do you do on these days? Yeah, for sure. I mean, this is, uh, you know, one thing about writing about habits is people think you have all yours dialed in. Or whatever, <laughs> You've right? got so it all I, figured out, right? Yeah, I mean, I, my readers and I are peers. You know, we are struggling with the same things. We're challenged by the same things. I, you know, uh, struggle with all the same stuff everybody else does. And so 
some of the things that I, I kind of view my habits in buckets now. So um, one bucket is like the, the physical wellness bucket. I'm pretty good about that, about like getting eight or nine hours of sleep each night, going to the gym pretty consistently. So like that is, that one I tend to, even if I have a bad day at work, I try to make sure I hit those. The ones in that bucket that I struggle with are probably diet and what I'll call like a power down routine. Um, so I'm good about getting enough sleep, but there'll often be a time where I'm like, uh, maybe I'll just do email for, you know, let me just check email real quick. Or, and of course it's never real quick, right? It's like two hours. Or um, let me just work on this chapter for a minute and then it turns into, you know, I'm up until 1 a.m. or something. Mm -hmm. So those are the ones in that bucket I kind of struggle with more. And then the, the second bucket, so the first one's like physical wellness and the second one's more, I guess we could call like more general like productivity and like getting things done. And with that one, writing tends, reading and writing tend to be the habits that make the biggest difference for my particular business. And I'm pretty good about those. If I ever struggle with writing, I always know I just need to read more. Uh, I kind of equate it to like driving a car. So writing is like going on an adventure, you get to a new destination. Mm -hmm. uh, reading is like filling the car up with gas. And the point of having a car is not to just stay at the gas station and fill it up with gas all day. So you, like, if you're just consuming and consuming and consuming, that's not what you want. But if you try to just write, 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 and never give yourself a break or never try to uh, bring something in, then eventually the car just stalls and you run out of gas. And so you kind of need a, a balance of both. But with that one, with the, the productivity piece, the two that I struggle with are one, uh, phone. So checking my phone too much. So now I have a little rule for myself where I leave my phone in another room until lunch each day. Mm -hmm. And I don't always hit it, probably 80 or 90% of the time uh, I do it. And whenever I do, you know, I get a block of three or four hours where I can actually get something done. Mm -hmm. And what's always interesting to me about that is if I bring it into the office and I put it next to me, I'm like everybody else. I'll check it like every three minutes. Yeah. But I have a home office. So if I leave it in another room, it's only 30 seconds away. But I never go get it. So I'm like, well, did I want it or not? Right? Mm -hmm. Like, I, in the one sense, I wanted it bad enough to check <laughs> it every three minutes. But in the other sense, I never wanted it bad enough to work 30 seconds to get it. Yeah. And technology does that to us in a lot of ways. Like, a lot of our habits are so frictionless now. They're so easy that we find ourselves doing them, even though we don't really like them or we don't want it bad enough to actually put it a little bit of work in. But it's just so easy, so convenient that we slide into it. So leaving my phone in another room is a good one. And then the other one I struggle with there is, um, I guess I'll call it productive procrastination, but it's like <laughs> basically instead of working on uh, topics or uh, items one and two on my priority list, I procrastinate on them by doing items like four, five, and six. And so I'm doing something and getting it done. It's easy for me to rationalize, but I'm not doing the thing that is the highest and best use of my time. And uh, so that like prioritization is something that I've, I've struggled with or would love to get better at. How do you apply habits in, I guess, creating more meaningful relationships? So you're married. So do you apply any systems to create habits to, you know, have a really, really strong and meaningful marriage? I think there are a couple different ways. First one is shared habits. So doing things together. It's like my wife and I work out together. Um, and that gives us an hour together each day that we otherwise wouldn't get to spend if we were working out separately or that we... Just we could we could do it sitting on a couch or we could do it somewhere else, you know, like spend that time together, but it's just a more healthy and productive thing. So shared habits are really helpful. Uh, we have it doesn't have to be something big like that. We also have like a shared gratitude habit. So every day we sit down for dinner, uh, we say one thing that we're grateful for that happened that day. 
And we've been doing that for seven or eight years now. And it's a small thing, but like the cumulative effect of doing that every day is, I think, meaningful and helpful. So um, some of it is shared habits. Some of it can just be using the strategies in the book to practice good relationship habits. So you mentioned like habit stacking earlier. Mm -hmm. You could say something like, um, all right, my habit is every morning I turn off my alarm to wake up and go take a shower. Well, now your new habit stack could be after I turn my alarm off, I roll over and kiss my spouse and then I take a shower, right? And so now you've got like a display of affection or a habit of affection that's stacked into your normal routine. And so little things like that, finding a couple little uh, areas to intersperse those throughout your day, I think that can be a positive signal and kind of build the, the goodwill and the strength of the relationship. So shared habits, habit stacking. And then the last strategy is something that I refer to as praise the good, ignore the bad. So that's the, just being uh, smart, just happy right. wife, happy life. <laughs> so there actually, there's a good, um, I think it was an op-ed that was in the New York Times a couple years ago. And this wife had written it and she was annoyed because her husband would not put his dirty clothes in the laundry hamper. He's just kind of like letting them strewn about. And she would ask him to do it or she would nag him about it or like complain about it. And it just, nothing was like moving the needle. So instead she decided, all right, I'm not going to complain about it anymore. I'm just, when he puts it in occasionally, because he will do it every now and then, I'll just make a really big deal about it. I'll run over and give him a hug. Thank you so much. Like, I'll give him a kiss. And she, oh, that's like so nice. This makes my life so much easier. Thank you. And what ended up happening is that over the course of the year, she ended up shaping his habits so that basically what was happening on his end was like, man, every time I do this, I get praised for it. Or like, it feels good. Or I get a kiss. Or like, you know? And so... Um, you're training the person around you uh, to do the thing that they feel positive about, they, they get praised for. And that's kind of the bigger picture of this piece. People often ask, especially with relationships or families, how do I change the habits of the people around me or how do I shift that? And that's a hard thing. I mean, it's, it's hard enough to change your own habits. It's particularly complicated to do it for somebody else. I don't even know that that really should be like our role, that we really should even look at it as yeah. our job to change other people. Um, it's more like show up in the best way that you can, and that's probably the best contribution you can make. But one thing that you can do is when people perform the behaviors you want them to perform, praise them for it. And certainly don't criticize them for it. This actually happens more often than you would think. Like uh, the introverted kid comes down to dinner and people are like, oh, look who showed up. And it's like, man, this is the thing you wanted them to do, yes. right, was to join us. And then now they feel like they're getting criticized yeah, for it. Very true. So... Praise the good, ignore the bad. It doesn't mean that you never criticize or you never point out a mistake, but it does mean that I think criticism actually is quite easy. Uh, it's maybe like more of the default for us to like see what's wrong. But we all, every human, wants to feel supported, praised, loved, approved of, accepted. And those are very positive emotions. And so when you associate that emotion with a habit, it's much more likely that it's going to stick because you start to learn, even if you never explicitly say it, man, every time I do this, I feel good uh, mm -hmm. because I get praised for it. And mm -hmm. so that, I think, is an effective strategy that people can use more. And we know that environment's really, really important um, to actually be able to not only just motivate us to live a better life and, and all these sort of things. If someone's in an environment where they really do believe they can't control and they can't change. What are the things that they can apply to help them improve their environment so that they can create better systems? So we can kind of divide this into physical environment and social environment. Physical environment, you can change fairly easily, actually. You know, like a lot of people feel like they watch too much television, but walk into any living room, where do all the couches and chairs face? Right? It's like, was that environment designed to get you to do? So you can 
put the TV behind a cabinet or a wall unit. Uh, you can turn a chair so that it doesn't face the TV and faces a coffee table with a book on it. And the same principles apply elsewhere too. The items on your desk at work or the things on your kitchen counter at home, right? Like we eat the most obvious foods, the ones that are out or like on the shelves in the pantry that are at eye level and things like that. So restructuring the environment, the physical environment is an effective way to, to shape those habits. But in the long run, I think the social environment plays a really crucial role. And the truth is like all of us are part of multiple tribes. Some of those tribes are large, like what it means to be Australian or what it means to be American. And some of them are small, like what it means to be a neighbor on your street or a member of your local gym or a volunteer at the local school. And all of those tribes, large and small, have a set of shared habits, a set of shared expectations for how to act in that group. And um, uh, if you move into a neighborhood and you walk outside on Tuesday night and you see your neighbor mowing their lawn or trimming their hedges, well, then you think, oh, I need to, I need to like trim our lawn up. But why do we do that? Well, partially it feels good to have a clean lawn, but mostly it feels good to have a clean lawn because you don't want to be judged by the rest of the neighborhood. <laughs> yeah, <right>? that's true. <laughs> and so it's the, uh, it's the social expectation that drives the habit. And so the punchline here is that you want to join a group, join a tribe where your desired behavior is the normal behavior. Because if it's normal in that group, then it's going to be very attractive to stick to it. You know, like it's really what it comes down to is belonging. Mm -hmm. um, if people have to choose between I have the habits that I want, but I'm cast out from the group, I, I don't get to belong, I'm ostracized, or I have habits I kind of don't want, but I get to fit in. Most people would rather be wrong with the crowd than right and by themselves. Most people would choose belonging over loneliness. And often the desire to belong overpowers the desire to improve. Yeah, I, I want to improve, but I also want to fit in with my family or I don't want to be judged by my friends. And so I decided to just like let it go. And for all of those reasons, I think it's really crucial to find a social environment where your desired behavior is the normal behavior. When you were researching for the book, did you do any research around depression and habits and how that could potentially help anyone that does uh, experience depression? Hmm. Yeah, it's interesting. So uh, I didn't do research specifically around depression or addiction, uh, which is also another one that often gets brought up. People ask about you know my thoughts on addiction or how the ideas apply. But I have heard from a lot of readers who either have, they or family members or close friends have dealt with depression, ADHD or attention deficit things, or actual addiction, substance abuse and things like that. And a surprising amount to me at least, because I didn't write the book for those topics, are how many people have said the concepts are still useful for that mm -hmm. situation. Specifically, uh, habit stacking and environment design are two that get mentioned a lot uh, from those groups. With depression in particular, the one area of research that I did come across is the impact of exercise on depression. Mm -hmm. And I think pretty much anybody who's dealing with depression probably has heard this already, but it's not for severe clinical forms of depression, which would require like a more intense intervention uh, and actual like, you know, licensed therapy or something like that. But for mild and possibly for moderate forms of depression as well, building an exercise habit can actually be a really powerful thing. And in fact, one of the, uh, I have this little area of the book where I talk about like what I guess we'd call mindset shifts. So for example, you could say, um, every morning I, uh, you know, I have to get up, uh, I have to take my kids to school, uh, I have to do this report for work, and then I have to go to the gym and work out. 
Or you could say, I get to wake up, I get to take my kids to school, I get to do this report for my job, and I get to work out. And the difference between have to and get to is only one word, but man, it's a really significant shift. And mm -hmm. you know, suddenly you're viewing your life not as a series of obligations, but as a series of opportunities. Mm -hmm. And one of the other mindset shifts, similar to have to and get to, that I came across was uh, someone was depressed, knew they needed to work out because it would probably help them. And, and in fact, whenever they did exercise, they realized, I do feel better, but they just couldn't build a habit or do it consistently. So they were always telling myself, I have to go for a run, I have to go exercise or whatever, but running is a hassle, blah, blah. So they reframed it to, uh, instead of I have to go for a run, I get to take my antidepressant. And so they started viewing exercise as a, an antidepressant, as a new form of like taking a pill. And that's a small thing, but uh, those little mindset shifts matter. They're, they're helpful. They start to frame things in a more positive light or give mm -hmm. you an additional incentive to show up and perform the habit. So that's kind of a roundabout answer to your question. Yeah, no, I, understand. Uh, I didn't investigate depression specifically, but yeah. I do think a lot of the concepts still apply. I think that also inspires gratitude as well, you know, reframing it from I have to to I get to. So, you know, even having the ability to go and exercise and actually move your body mm -hmm. and saying, I get to do this, right. is a really, it's a beautiful concept yeah. because you're being so grateful for the fact that you can actually do these things, which really helps as well. So One of my favorite ones in that section of the book is that somebody asked, they ran into someone who was bound to a wheelchair and had lost use of their legs. And they asked them, you know, do you feel confined by your wheelchair? And they said, no, I don't feel confined by it. I feel liberated by it. Mm. If I didn't have it, I would be stuck at home all the yeah. time. And so suddenly it's like, man, this thing that like you're viewing as such a, a negative or a drawback or restrictive, they see as like incredibly freedom inducing and, you know, uh, liberating. I love stuff like that where you like just take the common assumption or take the, uh, the standard view of a situation and invert it on its head. Mm -hmm. And by doing that, you suddenly have a much different way to like attack that next moment or to enjoy that next uh, period of your life. What's the most challenging thing that, that, you, um, that you've come across when people have spoken to you about wanting to create better systems for, for habits and changing their life? What's the biggest challenge that they face? So roughly speaking, we could divide it into like starting a habit and sticking with a habit. And starting with a habit actually isn't that hard to overcome if you have like the right strategies. A lot of it comes to scaling it down or designing the environment or some of the other things we've already talked about. But sticking with a habit, remaining consistent, that requires really, uh, to a certain degree, they're kind of the same problem because you could say sticking with a habit is just starting it every day. Uh, and so if you're really good at starting, you will naturally stick with it. But there are some additional elements involved. And particularly, I would say the most challenging thing is the social environment piece that we mentioned just a minute ago. In the short run, you might be able to overpower your environment. Your willpower, your discipline, your motivation might be stronger uh, for a day or a week or maybe even a month. But in the long run, the environment almost always wins. And that's particularly true for the social environment. And what you see a lot of the time is if people want to have a different lifestyle, they often move to a different social space. They move to a new city, they join a different group, they uh, make friends in a new area, they join a new gym or organization. Like they need a new set of people to be around so that they can get that habit to actually stick. If they stay around the same people who don't want to have the habit that they do, it becomes very hard. It's like running against the grain the whole time. I don't think that that means you have to ostracize people from your life or like never see them or you know cut out friends or whatever. Sometimes it does, um, but I don't think it has to mean that. 
But I do think that it probably means you need a sacred space in your day where that habit lives. So rather than um, you want to build a yoga habit, but nobody else in your family or none of your roommates or ever care about that. Well, rather than doing it at home, joining a yoga group or a club or going to a a studio to do it, that's a sacred space where just for that hour, you can be around people who support that habit and it makes it easier to cultivate and have it like live there. And so I think a lot of this comes down to finding the right context, both physical environment and social for that new habit to live. Don't try to plant uh, you know, a seed in a bad spot, basically, is mm-hmm. what I'm saying. You know, each, each habit is like putting a little seed in the ground and letting it cultivate and grow into something much bigger. But if you plant it on a rocky cliff, it's going to be a lot harder for it to grow than if it's in like fertile soil. And so you're trying to find where's that area of fertile soil for each habit. And that probably is one of the most important things for getting it to stick in the long run. What's someone's starting point if they want to look at changing their habits? If you have to pick just one thing to start with, if, you know, if I'm going to give a recommendation for just do this, uh, I would say the two-minute rule. So the two-minute rule says take whatever habit you're trying to build and scale it down to something that takes two minutes or less to do. So read 30 books a year becomes read one page a day. Or do yoga four days a week becomes take out my yoga mat. And sometimes when I say that, people resist a little bit because they're like, okay, I know the real goal isn't just to take my yoga mat out. Like, I know I actually want to do the workout. So if this is some kind of mental trick, then why would I fall for it? But if you feel that way, I understand where you're coming from. But um, So I have uh, this reader, Mitch, his name, and he ended up losing a ton of weight, 100 pounds, but what is that, like 50 kilos, 45 kilos, something like that. Mm -hmm. And um, for the first six weeks that he went to the gym, he wasn't allowed to stay for longer than five minutes. So he would get in the car, drive to the gym, get out, do half an exercise, get back in the car, drive home. (laughs) And it sounds ridiculous, right? It seems silly. It's like, clearly this is not going to get the guy the results that he wants. But what you realize is that he was mastering the art of showing up, right? He was becoming the type of person that went to the gym four days a week, even if it was only for five minutes. And I think this is a deep truth about habits. And one reason why it's such a great place to start is that a habit must be established before it can be improved. Like it has to become the standard, the normal in mm-hmm. your life before you worry about optimizing or scaling it up from there. And so often we're focused on finding the perfect business idea, the best workout program, the ideal diet plan. We're so focused on optimizing that we don't give ourselves permission to show up even if it's just in a small way. And so I think the two-minute rule kind of helps you overcome that tendency to do too much too soon and uh, just show up and master the art of, of being there each day. And that kind of also relates to the 1% um, that we were right. talking about. There's a, there's a real correlation. A 1% change is probably something you can do in two minutes or less. Yeah. Does, does not, maybe not always, but probably yeah. that's a good place to start. And, and honestly, this also, I'm glad you brought that up because 1% improvement is not, the idea here, it's more of a philosophy than a mathematical formula, mm-hmm. right? Like I'm not, you're not actually, you're kind of wasting time if you're thinking like, <laughs> oh, is this 0.75 or is yeah. this 2%? Like it's not, it's not about that. It's really yeah. about trying to find a small margin for improvement each day yes. and layer those on top of each other and trust that in the long run, the math will work out just fine. And just taking that action and having uh, a meaning assigned to that as well in terms of how you were talking about the reward, which is really, really important as well for us as humans, is really a, a bit of a game changer. So I'd love for you to tell everybody where they can find you online, where they can find more information, where they can find your book. Sure. So thank you for the opportunity. Um, book, obviously, it's called Atomic Habits, um, an easy and proven way to build good habits and break bad ones. If you want to go straight to the book, then you can just go to atomichabits.com. 
And then for my other work, all of that is at jamesclear.com. Uh, you can click on books and find it there. I have a habit journal that pairs nicely with the book. That's also available uh, on, on jamesclear.com. Probably the only other thing I should mention is my weekly newsletter. So I, every Thursday, I send out what I call 321. Uh, so it's three short ideas from me, two quotes from other people, and one question to think about throughout the week. And uh, you can find the newsletter and all that at, uh, at jamesclear.com as well. Thank you so much, James. I've got one more question for you. Sure. So for my for my show, my podcast, my mission is I want people to really believe that their potential is limitless. And I really do believe that we can become who, whoever we want to be, uh, especially in the time that we live in. We live in such an incredible time. So I'd love to know what your definition of limitless potential is. Hmm. Probably in a single word, I would probably say evolution uh, or the idea that you can continue to evolve. Like that, that's, you know, there's that uh, quote from Phil Knight, who's the founder of Nike, where he says, like, life is growth, evolve or die, basically, you know, and, and that I think is the process of becoming something limitless. The idea that you, you can continually become something new, you know, you're always one decision away from a different life. And so if you're willing to embrace that idea or to uh, embrace the process of, layering those 1% improvements on top of each other, of uh, making continuous change part of your daily routine, then sure, you you know, like who knows where you'll end up. And so I think that that probably ties in nicely with a lot of the things we've talked about previously. You know, definitely. And you mentioned that you asked ask your audience one question in your newsletter. So what's one question you can ask my audience today? Oh, sure. So let's see. I think, let me give you a couple if okay. you're all right with it. Yeah, so, of course. Uh, one good big picture question is what am I optimizing for? Mm-hmm. So, uh, you know, like we, you look at your life right now and ask what it's optimized for and then ask, is that aligned with what, you know, what am I trying to optimize for? Some people optimize for money, some people optimize for time, some people optimize for love, some people optimize for, you know, whatever. So you have to choose what that is for you. And a lot of times we inherit uh, things that maybe we shouldn't necessarily optimize for. And then the last one that I'll offer, which is kind of a parting word for our discussion on habits is... Can my current habits carry me to my desired future? You know, like uh, the, if you look at the habits that you have right now, if you, that, if you just keep running that system, you keep running that experiment, are you going to end up where you want to end up at? And uh, if not, then something needs to change. Thank you. They're very powerful questions. Thank you so much for coming on the show. And, uh, and this is the book again, so you have to check it out. It's an incredible book. And, uh, and also also join James Clear's newsletter. There's so much value in there and so many things that you can download off the website as well. So thank you so much, James. Great, thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening to today's conversation. At Deconstructing Success, we have so many more incredible conversations for you to download, listen to, and share. Check out the links in the podcast description so that you can continue to learn, apply, and evolve. We would love for you to support the show and you can do this by leaving a review on Apple Podcasts or leaving a comment on your favorite platform. You can also share this episode with someone that you know who can benefit from listening to today's show. If you wish to connect with me personally, you can find me on LinkedIn, Instagram and YouTube. Just type in Tima Alhaj, send me a direct message and let me know which episode you listen to. All of the links are in the podcast description. Your future success is waiting for you. Until next time, this is Tima.